the following program may contain adult situations and language that may be unsuitable for younger listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Live from the RTDS studios, this is Chuck's World of Infinite Mojo, proudly sponsored by, with your host, Chuck Basti. Chuck's personal mission is to introduce the world to the people that motivate him on his inspirational journey into his world of infinite mojo. Here's your host, Chuck Basti. That's me. Again, I'm getting worried about you because these these intros you're doing now that that's me, they're getting a little tame. Are yeah. they? Yeah, I think so. I'm Todd, nothing I do in my life is tame. You take that back. You are a wild beast, my you friend. You put that away. You stuff that in a sack somewhere. <laughs> so you're you're pumped today. I'm pumped. What's happening? Do you know what I really love about having a radio show is that... I've been working with me every week. That's true. Well, uh-huh. that was a given, mm-hmm. right? But what I really love about radio show, having your own radio show, is you really get to make it about other people. And today I get to make it about a person who I've been listening to for 40 years, my entire life, and his songs are actually etched into my childhood, which make them timeless for me and for my kids and uh, everyone who's attached to me in a car. You want to throw a name out there? Yeah, I was waiting for you to throw that. <laughs> I'm actually interviewing Bobby Goldsboro today, and you might remember him from the 60s and 70s with his hit song, Honey, which in 1968 was the best-selling song in the entire world. He outsold the Beatles and the Bee Gees and everybody in the world in 1968 with Honey. You know what? I think I actually may have had one of those cutout records from a box of post cereal. They were cardboard, but down one side they had sort of a pseudo yeah, vinyl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Bobby was on there. Of course he would. Have. He was huge. He was yeah. everywhere in 1968. And we're going to talk to him today. Excellent. Well, of course, uh, this is Chuck's World of Infinite Mojo on Listen Up Talk Radio and Radio That Doesn't Suck. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Paul Capricante, host of the Vinyl Experience, with a couple of magic numbers for you to remember. This is real simple. Are you ready? Here we go. Nine and three. Every Sunday at 9 a.m., 3 p.m., 9 p.m., and for good measure, 3 a.m. on Monday. This is all Eastern Time. Your time's for the Vinyl Experience. Welcome back to Chuck's World of Infinite Mojo. 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 Mojo! Yeah, we stole that. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Chuck's World of Infinite Mojo on Listen Up Talk Radio and Radio That Doesn't Suck. And we've got him on the phone. We managed to track him down. Bobby Goldsboro is in the RTDS studio, Todd Miller. This is one of the highlights of my... My You've had a few, career. my friend. You've yes, had a few. but you know what? The one thing about this is um, Bobby, Goldsboro's, Bobby Goldsboro's music is tied to my childhood. You know, I grew up listening to it, and it surpasses me. It surpasses my father, who actually introduced Bobby to me. And uh, so, with are you that, passing it, on to your daughter? Yes, absolutely. She already knows. And my next guest is a singer, songwriter, accomplished oil painter, and overall artist. His career has spanned six decades and if you grew up in the 60s and 70s you'll know his distinct rich voice from the 16 top 40 hits he's produced welcome to the rts studio bobby goldsboro thank you good to be here well listen i wanted to start off with you at the very beginning of your career 
Uh, you toured with Roy Orbison, and mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned before that you were up here in Canada with us. In 1964, you wrote See the Funny Little Clown. And uh, I want to ask you now, why did you write this song, and how did you get the inspiration for being the funny little clown? Well, I actually wrote the song out of necessity. I had, uh, I had signed with a record producer when I was still with the little band I was in down at Auburn University in Alabama. And uh, the summer of my second year is when we got with Orbison, but we had, we had gone up to uh, Birmingham to make some tapes just before we got with Orbison. And they were heard by a guy up in New York, a record producer, and he signed me to a recording contract just before I got with Roy. And I didn't hear from him for a year, and I thought that's the the shortest career in history. I, <laughs> so one day he sent, uh, he finally called about a year later and said he had found three songs that he wanted me to learn, and he was going to bring me to New York to record them. And the three songs that he sent, I didn't think any of them were hits, and I, th- I just thought to myself, I, th- I think I can write something better than these <laughs> things. And uh, so I actually sat down and wrote See the Funny Little Clown in about 20 minutes. And uh, when we went to New York to record... Uh, and I played the song for uh, Jack Gold was the producer. I played it for him and for the arranger. And uh, Jack said, well, if we have time at the end of the session, we'll record it. That was the fourth song on the session. And usually you did three or four songs in a three-hour session. And we had 15 minutes left is all we had. And uh, we cut the song twice. And uh, it turned out to be my first top ten record. So what was the inspiration for being the funny little clown? Because, you know, like the reason I'm asking the question is, uh, my brother and I would, my brother Chris and I would be in the back seat of my dad's 1977 Valari, mm-hmm. and we'd be listening to that song. And he'd always, he'd always come in, and I'd always tease him that he was the funny little clown. At the end of the song, you reveal that you're the, you know, the narrative of the song. It's, mm-hmm. it's written about you. But uh, where's the inspiration come from on a human standpoint of being the funny little clown? Well, I think, uh, I think all of us at one time or the other, we, you know, we're trying, especially when you're in high school and you're trying to attract the girls and trying to be cool and uh, you're always trying to be funny but a lot of times I mean I was I was like the class clown in school I was uh, I was kind kind of nerdy I, I played sports but I was more of I wore glasses and I was more of a nerd than anything uh, but I always I, I was uh, in fact I was voted the the uh, funniest of my senior year <laughs> so I'll tell you something because I'm always cracking jokes and and trying to be funny but there were there were times that uh you know, I would see all the all the cool football players getting most of the girls, and I was uh, I was kind of doing the old laughing on the outside, crying on the inside kind of yeah. thing. So it was pretty it was uh, it was uh, pretty easy to write. So the one thing I get from your music is, uh, and I mentioned this at the at the start of the show, but y- your songs have so much human connection to them. You know, whether you're talking about Broomstick Cowboy or Autumn of My Life for the first time. Um, the one that really comes to mind is watching Scotty grow. And uh, that song, they're actually, I remember watching The Simpsons, you know, one time Homer <laughs> right. and, and Bart are actually putting together a little soapbox racer, and they play that song. And I'm like, that, immediately when I heard the song, I go back to my dad's 1977 Vlari being in the back with a, a <laughs> bottle of Coke in my mouth and chip wagon on the side and listening to you on the A track. So, what do you think it is about your music that makes it so connectable that 50 years later we're still listening to it? Well, I, I tried to uh, either write or find songs that I thought would be lasting. Uh, I, I, even back at that young time in my life, I knew that uh, everybody has a shelf life. Every recording artist, no matter how big you are, you've got a shelf life. You're going to sell for so long, and then the next generation wants their own heroes, and they want to 
that listen to their own kind of music. And uh, it doesn't mean that people don't still like your music, but the people that used to buy your records now are married and have children, and they're spending money on on uh, diapers and things like that instead of recording. So uh, I always knew that, and I tried to keep that in mind, and I tried to to re- find songs or write songs that would have that'd be more be, have more of a lasting effect, things that you could hear ten years from now and still think, hey, that's a good song, you know. And uh, I didn't do a lot of I did some of the catchy catchy type rhythm songs, but at the same time, most of the things I did, especially in the albums, were songs that I felt were 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 had something to say. Yeah, and you know, from '64 uh, till '68, you had some great success. Uh, and when you're writing four years of you know top-notch success, and you come out with your poster song "Honey" mm-hmm. in 1968, that was the biggest-selling song in the world, Todd. In the world, I mean, you've got the Beatles at that time right there, and Bobby Goldsboro outsells the Beatles in 1968 with "Honey." Um, tell me a little bit about that song and what it means to you and how you found everyone has connected with you to that uh, to that landmark song. Well, the thing is, a, a friend of mine, Larry Henley, who was the lead singer with the New Beach, you remember Bread and Butter? Yeah. That was Larry Henley, was a good friend, and he, was, uh, he came over. I had an apartment. I was building a house in Nashville, and I had a little apartment up there. And he came by one day and said, I want you to come across the street to Acuff Rose Publishing and Ooh, hear this yeah. record that, uh, that Bobby Russell just wrote for for Bob Shane of the Kingston Trio. And I went over and listened to it, and it was Honey. And it really kind of, it didn't do that much for me because it was such an overproduced record. There were lots of drums and uh, things going on. It just really wasn't, uh, it was overproduced is what I thought. And he played two or three things, and they were kind of teeny bopper, up-tempo things. I said, don't you have anything like a ballad, uh, anything? What about the song that you just did for Bob Shane? I said, can you play that? He said, well, yeah, but it's coming out next week by Bob Shane. It's called Honey. So he played it with just a guitar, and it just completely blew us away. It was like a whole whole different song. Yeah. So we said, we've got to cut this. And uh, so we went in and cut it, actually, the next day. And after the first take, the musicians even came in back into the control room, the, the violin players and all who weren't known, known to do this. They came in to listen to the playback, and they were all saying, this is, a, this is going to be a huge record. So we called Bobby Russell at the studio and said, listen, we just cut, I think, the biggest record I've ever I've ever had up to now. I think this is going to be the biggest one. And we want to release it. And he said, well, Bob Shane's record just came out. It's just coming out this week. So why don't you give us two weeks with the Bob Shane? And if nothing happens, then you can come out with yours. So we waited actually two weeks to the day and then released my record. And luckily, I had the hit instead of Bob Shane. And I think, I'm not trying to be modest, but I think if you put my vocal on his recording and his vocal on mine, he would have had the hit because it was the the arrangement and the, the the girl with a high voice and the, it was just a very simple arrangement done to where you could really listen to the lyrics and I think that's what well, was the key to that the success of that record. Well, I just think there's there's so much. I mean, it's like the perfect storm of, you know, like you said, the arrangement, the richness of your voice. It sounds like when you're singing the song, she's a real person. And at the end of your life, you're still having this story that you're sharing. And I think everybody just can empathetically connect to that story, whether it be their parents or themselves in their later years. And it just makes it so real, which just creates such a, a wonderful feeling inside of the human connection that that song shares. So. Well, I have still, to this day, I still get mail and emails and things and letters that, uh, from people that, are, that say that that song 
meant more than any other song they've ever heard because it, it they related to their mother or to their wife or to their daughter, even a daughter. Uh, it was a, there was a, a girl who this I mean a lot of unfortunate things, but these the people pour out their hearts to you. There was yeah. a I got a letter from a couple that said that their daughter had been killed in an automobile accident, and uh, that was her. That's all she played every day was that song. She was only like 12 years old, so they actually played that at the funeral. And it sounds a little maudlin, but it's not, I, I can understand that because that's that that's why that song hit people so so in the heart you know so it was uh, it was that that was the reason it it it, uh, it did what it did i think because a lot of so many people could relate to it and you sing a lot of these connected songs when you sing the songs for so many years and they're part of you and you know people share endlessly with their stories like you've just shared right now how do you show up and not only sing those songs but mean them because as an artist you know you want to move on you want to be able to actually step forward inside of you know, creating new songs. And, and when you're held back by your past, by the great songs you've created, it kind of bottlenecks you as an artist. But as a human being, you want to move through. But how do you get through that side? Well, I think it's, it's, all, it's really pretty easy to do. When I go out and do a concert, when I, get to, when I do Honey or even, even Little Things and It's Too Late and uh, Autumn of My Life, songs like that, I know that a lot of those people that are sitting in the audience have never heard me sing them live. And... These are songs that they probably listened to again before they came to the concert, and these are songs that meant something to them. And to me, it's like I'm, I, they're like almost like new songs every time I get up there and sing them because I, I, uh, I don't know. Every, it's, it's like when I hear a, a song that I heard growing up on the radio, uh, when I hear it, I may not have heard it for 40 years, and I'm immediately taken back to where I was when I first heard it. I remember, and it's a funny thing, there was a song called Little Things Mean a Lot by Kitty Callan. That was back in the uh, early 50s. And I was standing out by a swimming pool. I was like probably 11 years old or something. And this song came on. And it, it hit me so, it did something to me because like 40 or 50 years later, I heard that song and I was immediately transported back to that swimming pool in Mariana, Florida. And I could even smell the chlorine in the water <laughs> just hearing that song. Wow. So, so that's what music does to you. And I think... Uh, I think that's what, uh, when I do a concert, I think people are taken back to whenever they first heard that song. It had a special meaning to them for whatever reason. Maybe they had just met their uh, their spouse at the time, or, or uh, it was a, just a, a certain time in their life when that song meant something to them. And so I, it's, it's easy to go out and sing those songs again. I've, I've sung Honey a million times, and it's still, I, I, first of all, it's a great song, and I, I love singing it, so it's, it's, it's not hard to do at all. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit more after the break. We'll take a break right now, but I want to talk a little bit more about the break on how you actually got there as an artist and who got behind you and believed you when you didn't believe in yourself. That really transported your career. So, And if there's anybody out there listening who hasn't heard Honey, we're going to play a little bit of it right now as we go to break. You're listening to Chuck's World of Infinite Mojo on Listen Up Talk Radio and Radio That Doesn't Suck. We'll be right back. That she'd been sitting there and crying some sad and silly late late show and honey I miss you and I'm being good and I'd love to be with you if only I could 
Hey, Paul Cavalcante here from the Vinyl Experience Radio Show, Sunday mornings. You provide the bagels and the coffee and the newspaper, and I'll spin the records at 9 a.m. And then an encore at 3 p.m. Missed out? You'll catch the show again at 9 p.m. on Sundays and again at 3 a.m. Monday morning. The Vinyl Experience, 9 and 3. That's all you need to know. Oh, 33, 45, and 78 are important numbers, too, but you get the idea. Welcome back to Chuck's World of Infinite Mojo, or as we like to call it around here, whatever the hell's on Chuck's mind, on radio that doesn't suck. Welcome back to Chuck's World of Infinite Mojo, chatting with Bobby Goldsboro today about his incredible career and still uh, still enjoying playing Honey. Yeah, and not only playing Honey, the songs he sings, he's also quite the oil painter as well. So if you go to bobbygoldsboro.com, You'll go into different sides. There's a music side, there's a painting side, there is his TV side as well. So, very creative artist, and uh, we got him back in the studio. Bobby, you still with us? I'm still here. <laughs> Listen, I wanted to ask you in the second half of the set here, uh, as an artist, I mean, we have all this inspiration inside of us, and it's, it's, it's begging to come out, and we get stopped by, this sucks, nobody's going to listen to this, no one's going to buy this. You know, in fact, I, I actually saw something... That was kind of very poignant uh, when I was going through my research for you that someone had said, and I don't know who it was, but the quote was for watching Scotty grow. I just don't think anyone will buy a record about a father and a son, unquote. That was the president of the record company. Can you believe that? (laughs) We walked in and played this record. I said, they're going to love this. This is going to be a monster. (laughs) And the head of the record label said, uh, it's a good Good record, good record, but uh, I just don't know who's going to go out and buy a record about a father loving his son. And and I just, I mean, I was dumbfounded. I thought, and the first thing I said, I said, do you have a son? And he says, no. I said, well, that should explain it. Yeah. <laughs> and I got him to, uh, it was coming out in the, in the album, and I said, I'll tell you what, let's see what happens with the album, and if that starts getting the play, that should tell us. And, uh, he said, well, all right, we'll give it a shot. So they put the album out, and everybody in the country started playing Watching Scotty Grow out of the album, and they immediately released it, and it was a huge hit. So, again, you know, these are not geniuses that run these labels. <laughs> Clearly. What was that conversation with them like afterwards? Was there any money involved? In I just, you know what? I went in, and I expected him to say, well, you were right. He said, well, we did great with that one. And I, said, <laughs> uh, and I just said, we sure did. I yes, didn't want to say... We <laughs> well, if, here's my point. If that's the the president of the of the label, and that's you know the the head of the the the, the hierarchy, right. there's people obviously in your life, and we have that inside of our our negative consciousness about what we can't do, how it's not going to be perceived. Um, who got you, uh, and who believed in you when you didn't believe in yourself as an artist that really put you on the map? Well, I like I said, I I just I was still with a little band down in Alabama, and. Uh, we were just we're just making some tapes, and uh, Jack Gold, who was the record producer that eventually signed me and brought me to New York, he did so much for me because he believed in me as an artist. But uh, Roy Orbison probably did more for me than anybody because I I got to tour with him for three and a half years and got to be, get up in front of thousands of people every night, and they were I mean they were watching Roy and not me, but it was it was a great experience for me and a great proving ground and a great uh, place to 
to uh, to learn about being on stage and watching somebody like Orbison every night. So those, I think Jack Gold, the producer, and and Orbison more than anybody, uh, you know, believed in me and, and, and enough that I, I felt like, well, maybe I can do something here. So when you have all this legendary success and you're rolling, you're selling millions of albums and records and meeting dignitaries, you got to have somebody back as um, your hero that you come across that when you see the person, you get starstruck. Who is that person for you? Well, growing up, my heroes were baseball players. I wanted to play Major League Baseball. And guys like Mickey Mantle and guys oh. like this that I just thought, these, these are not real people, you know. And I eventually got to meet Mickey Mantle, and he, he, he started naming off my records and, and said his favorite oh. all-time song, him and Billy Martin, was with Pen in Hand, the song that I had Great written. Great song. Yeah. And I just, I'm sitting there listening to this, trying to be act, act nonchalant, and I'm thinking, Mickey Mantle is telling me that his favorite <laughs> song is with Pen in Hand. Well, he's from but, Oklahoma, too, so. But, well, the thing is, I, I, uh, like I said, growing up, baseball players were my idols, but I, if, if I got to meet, a, I, I was at a club one night in, at the Coconut Grove in, in Los Angeles sitting there with the producer of the uh, Mike Douglas show. We had gone down to see uh, somebody down there, and I looked, all the lights are on in the place, and we're sitting at the table, and I looked across the room, and there was a guy sitting by himself, and I said, I said, Fred, who does that look like to you? And he said, I don't know. I said, it looks like Neil Armstrong. And he said, who? I said, <laughs> I said yeah, Neil sure. Armstrong. He said, who is Neil? I said, you're kidding me. I said, the first man on the moon, the first guy to ever leave this planet and put his foot down somewhere else. That looks like Neil. He said, well, I don't know what he looks like. I said, I said, I'm, I'm and I had my head down. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to get up the nerve and I'm going to go over there and meet Neil Armstrong. And about that time, somebody tapped me on the shoulder. I looked up and he said, excuse me, aren't you Bobby Goldsboro? I said, yes, I am. He says, I'm Neil Armstrong. <laughs> and I'm thinking, Neil Armstrong has just introduced himself to me. Wow. I mean, these are the kind of things that, that just dumbfound me. That I, I, You know, Mickey Mantle and Neil Armstrong. I mean, you, you, you don't get And then Jimmy Durante. It was the same thing when I met Jimmy Durante because I, yeah. I, I'd watched him on television growing up. And so these are the kind of people that I that just blew me away when I met him. So you have all these years behind you of being a, you know, a, uh, a musician, songwriter, a performer, and then you transition over afterwards into TV and now into oil painting. So tell us a little bit about why you're passionate about oil painting and what the shift was for you. Well, when, when I was uh, growing up, I, anything that had to do with uh, painting, like oil paintings, for instance, I mean, anything painting, anything, uh, any famous painter was an oil painter. That's the way I grew up thinking, well, if you're ever going to paint, you got to paint in oils, because that's what Rembrandt and uh, Da Vinci and all these guys painted in oils. And, but I, I never, growing, all growing through, going, going up through, uh, through school, I never painted, I never drew, I never did anything, but I always uh, loved to look at art for some reason. And over the years, even when I was out uh, doing concerts, uh, my wife and I, when I would do a concert in a place that had a museum or a, a lot of art galleries, we'd stay over and, and check out the art galleries and go into the museums. And I'd look at the artwork and I'd say, one day I'm going to try this. I think I would enjoy oil painting. And I would just sit there and, and in my head I would wonder, what colors did they use to, to get this color? What did they mix and what kind of brush to get that effect? And all this, But I never 
picked up a book, never went took a lesson. I just I just started thinking about it in my head, and I would study in my head the same way I write music. I never wrote anything down. I would create it in my head. So I, over the years, I would say, one day I'm going to oil paint. I'm going to try it. And finally, one day, my wife said, look, you've been saying this for years. When are you going to oil paint? And I said, mm-hmm. I'll tell you what. The day I turn 65, I'm going to start oil painting. And that's exactly what I did. The day I turned 65, I went out and bought canvases and oil paints, brushes, and, and, and started just started painting. And now, I mean, there's a, I'm, on one hand, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I waited because now I have the time to devote to it. But at the same time, I wish I'd started 30 years ago because I love it so much. But had I done it 30 years ago, I wouldn't have devoted the time to the, that I needed to to the music. So it's, uh, it's, it's come at the right time, I think, in my life. And it's something that I get up every day, and I can't wait to get over here to the studio. In fact, right before I called you today, I was painting. And as soon as I hang up, I'm going to get back to painting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you're, you've had a career that's spanned in six different decades. And uh, you're 73 right now. What do you want to be remembered for? Uh, and, and I mean this as a human being. Obviously, you've got the name, you've got the platform, you've got the hits, you've got the, the legacy that nobody can take away from you. But as a man, as a father, as a husband, what is it, if you had five minutes left to live, that you would say, hey, listen, this is what I want to be remembered for? Well, I think of the things that I've, if you call it creating uh, the music and the art, I think I think the art will be here long after the music's gone. I honestly do, because I think a good piece of art will last. And uh, I, tr- I try to do, every time I do a painting, I try to do. I, I try to say, is this going to be something somebody's going to stick on their wall because it matches the colors on the sofa, or is this something they're going to... I try not to do a painting just to sell it. I try to do something that's going to mean something to somebody. And so I, every painting I do, I, I really try to, before I even start painting, I try to put that much thought into it to say, is this something that somebody's going to really want bad enough to pay? I mean, I, a lot of people, uh, when they hear that I've sold so many pieces of art, and uh, I've heard people say, well, they're buying it because they like your music. I said, they'll spend 15 bucks on a CD if they like my music. They're not going to spend $15,000 on a painting unless they like the painting. You know? so, or they connect so to it. it yeah. I, I think it's, um, I think it's, it's uh, that's the main thing I, of, of well, what I've done up to now in my life, and I like to think there's still a lot more to come, hopefully. But, but I think the between the music and the and the art, hopefully some of the songs will still be around, you know, thirty, forty, fifty years from now. And uh, but I think the art, hopefully, will still be here long after I'm gone. For sure. Listen, I had uh, Don Reed from the Statler Brothers on my show a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. and uh, he actually came up with a great moment. In the very last uh, concert they ever gave, in, I think it was 1994, he wrote a book on, you know, he was on stage, he was looking at his, you know, uh, bandmates, his friends, his wives, mm-hmm. and he got to the point where he was just like, how did we get here? I'm just a small kid from, you know, west part of Virginia, and now we've got a telegram from George W. Bush coming in, wishing us luck. On your standpoint, where was the moment there when you said to yourself, you had all the success, you thought to yourself, how did I just get here? Like, what happened that conspired to give me all the success and connectability and talent, and it all accumulated into one moment? What was that moment for you? Well, you know what? I, I have that thought Probably once a month. Good. <laughs> I honestly do because every time I'm going to go out and do a concert, for instance, I'll say, 
what if nobody shows up? What if nobody, you know, uh, why would these people pay money to hear me get up and sing? I, I, to this day, it still dumbfounds me. And uh, uh, the same thing when I have an art show, when we have a, a packed house for an art show and people lining up to come in and look at the art, and I'm thinking, how did I get to be so lucky? What I, I must have uh, horseshoe bumped my head, I think, when I was born. I, I, <laughs> I honestly think that... You know the old Lou Gehrig line: "The luckiest man on the face of the earth." Yeah. Nobody has, nobody on earth can be any any happier than I am. I mean, there's people that are much more successful, much richer, and uh, but nobody is is any happier than I am right now. I think think this is probably the happiest time of my entire life. My wife and I just enjoy life. We travel, we go to Europe. I, I paint, we do art shows, and I do concerts. And I I don't know what I could do. To, to to be any happier if all of a sudden tomorrow I hit the a billion dollar lottery, very little would change in my life because uh, I've, I I I I have and do what I the things that I want to do. You know I'm, I I hear what you're saying, and although I agree with most of it, you know there's one part I'm going to you know call you out on that you're the happiest man in the world. Right now that would be me, because I'm not rich, I'm not famous. And I've got you on my radio show, and I grew up listening to you and connecting to your songs. I actually picked up my first guitar and started writing ballads because of being inspired by your music and figured, you know, um, I didn't have your voice. You know, I still don't have your voice. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, I had your message inside of me. And th your songs are just so connectable. Uh, 40, 50 years later, they're still resonating with people. And I'm just so happy that you've taken the time out of your day. I realize you could have been a million other places. That you well, could have it's been, been a pleasure, and I, I tell you, I, I, it's it's hard for me to to talk about myself, but it's not hard for me to talk. It's always it's, I'm, you know, on, on an interview, you usually have to get the hook to get me off because I talk. But uh, I'll tell you what, I have enjoyed this so much, and. Uh, I hope we can do it again. Well, Bobby, that would be a great... I would love to have you back on the show as well. And stick around after the the show here. I'll talk to you in, uh, off the uh, mic. And I'm just so excited to have you on my show. Thank you very much for my showing pleasure. up on Chuck's World of Infinite Mojo, Todd. To find out what Bobby's up to these days, head over to bobbygoldsboro.com where you can find uh, his concert appearances and, of course, the listings of all the galleries where his incredible paintings are on view and for sale. We'll catch you right back here on uh, Chuck's World of Infinite Mojo next uh, Tuesday at 8 p.m. on Radio That Doesn't Suck and Listen Up Talk Radio. Thank you for spending time with Chuck in his infinite world of mojo. If you'd like to get in touch with Chuck or Todd, the email address is feedback at radiothatdoesntsuck.com or call the feedback line 866-269-6155.